Vincent Wilviney. This podcast is about the amazing research into honeybees, bumblebees, and other insect pollinators at Rosenstead Research in Hertfordshire. Now, bees have complex social lives that have made them a source of fascination, fear, and of course, honey for many centuries. Culturally, theologically, philosophically, bees have been used as illustrative models for human behavior. Our children are encouraged to show their industry by being busy bees, and our philosophers have likened their communal, plural, and corporate social character to our own. Now, this deep-seated and anthropomorphic attitude to bees, and to honeybees in particular, issues from an ancient tradition that draws on their collective and industrious powers. Socially stratified, artisanal, productive, under threat, from the earliest Greek poetry to the latest Hollywood blockbuster, the bee seems to stand as an emblem of man's relationship to nature and, ultimately, to himself. But in more secular times, the health of bee populations has become a powerful byword for ecological diversity and sustainability. The contribution that bees make to our industry and to our environment has become a major national and international concern. So with these things in mind, I went to Rothamsted Research to learn more about the importance of bees as pollinators and the pressures that now threaten their population. By doing so, I discovered the unusual techniques that some scientists use to know more about what bees do and how they do it. I spoke to Dr. Stefan Wolf and Dr. Dino McMahon and began by asking Dino how we might begin to understand the value of bees as insect pollinators. So I suppose we could think of uh, the value of insect pollinators in, a, in kind of two different ways, uh, like a commercial value and also an ecosystem uh, value. Um, one is perhaps easier to, to calculate and there are some figures that have been kind of discussed of the value of insect pollinators to global productivity kind of reaching into the many hundreds of billions of, of euros. Um, and the other aspect, kind of ecosystem aspect, and the role of pollinators, and insect pollinators in particular, within uh, ecosystems and their stability and their diversity, that's perhaps less easy to calculate, but nonetheless as important, if not more important, to us. Stefan, you'd like to say something about sort of the contemporary crisis, perhaps, that bees are facing? You know, bees exhibit a completely different environment and different pressures of the environment now than they did even 50 years ago. Yeah. I mean, it is, has something to do, of course, with emergent diseases, which is sort of the basic idea why we why we actually do research here as we do. But it also has something to do with um, a lot of interactions of different factors that, like the use of uh, pesticides, of course, the, uh, the hugely increased management of bees. In, and in the, the landscape. And, of course, altered landscape, yeah, just the effects of, I mean, it's just, it is very, very hard. And this is one of the big challenges, actually, also explaining why a lot of bees in the U.S. died as they did. You know, it is very, very hard, even though a lot of highly respected uh, bee research groups work on the, exactly that problem. Uh, it is very hard to really nail the, the thing down to, to one cause. And I think the overall outcome is that it's not that there is not one cause, but it's more like the interaction of a lot of stressors that just accumulated over the years and years to uh, honeybee colonies, leading to this effect that we see that a lot of honeybee colonies actually collapse for apparently mysterious reasons, just because they cannot cope with all these stressors at the same time. Our mandate really is to try and unpick some of these potentially complicated aspects of the story. And to do that, we choose a kind of very experimental approach to try and kind of reduce the number of variables that might be at play so that we can really pin down exactly which aspects of the problem are significant, which ones perhaps aren't so so significant. 
Um, so, so kind of the intention from from our perspective is to to design a highly experimental approach that relies less on a descriptive uh, um, angle and more on a controlled experimental angle. So this season we have been focusing our attention on Nosema serrani, which is this yeah. microsporidian uh, intracellular parasite, and that's exactly what we've been trying to focus our attentions on this this uh, this this time around. And there are certain ways in which you can look at and investigate uh, bee behaviour, but we have taken the the decision to this time look at very specific aspects of bee behaviour and in particular the way that honeybees forage in their natural environment out, outside of the hive. So one, one way of looking at behaviour might be to look inside the hive and to see how individuals are interacting with one another, how they're going through their, uh, their caste differentiation from nurse bee to, to guard bee or from nurse bee to, to uh, forager. These are all things that you can do within the hive but you can also think about looking at behaviours that are occurring outside of the hive, and that's what we've done, done this year. Yeah, and we are sort of in a very lucky position uh, that we have the technology to actually do that. Can you just say, yeah, say something about what it is you've, you use and, and how you use it? The thing that we, well, the, the, the methodology that we use is actually that we can uh, track individual bees in the, in the landscape by attaching a small antennae, if you like, a sort of a transponder, uh, on their back, which can that be uh, can visualized by a radar system, by a harmonic radar, so that so that the the transponder is actually reacting to a, a radar signal, transforming that to a harmonic radar, uh, to a harmonic uh, frequency of of the initial frequency that we send out, record again, and then we can actually track a bee in the landscape, just so seeing sort of the signal moving in sort of time and space, you know. And is the hypothesis that bees that uh, carry a disease move and, and behave in different ways? There have been some uh, articles published on that. I mean, there's the, uh, the suspicion that, especially with Nzimus Rani, a lot of bees tend to not come back to the hive again. And there was this big question mark why that is. I mean, there's clearly the, um, some colleagues um, found very clear evidence that obviously these bees have problems to, to find their hive again, or just or die outside, or whatever it is. And we have sort of now as we can track the bees can actually see why they do not return if assuming they don't return uh, to the hive we can actually really see what is the problem is it that they die outside and they don't make it back to the hive or if if they come back to the hive but have sort of impaired orientation abilities and would not find the entrance again and then get lost in the in the landscape so this is you know nothing that we could actually see without actually individually tracking bees, and we are have we having the, the tools to do that now, and it's quite exciting. And uh, I suppose one of the specific components of that relates to colony collapse disorder, which I don't think we've touched on too much. Where in the U.S. in particular, not in Europe so much, in '06 '07, there was this, this quite unusual observation of honeybees or colonies being opened up, and there being no adult bees present. Uh, so perfectly healthy brood resource in terms of nectar and pollen stores and a queen but no bees when there were no dead bees around the colony they just seemed to have mysteriously disappeared and this was coined colony collapse disorder and so this sort of the way that Stefan has described our kind of our experimental approach would also tie in quite nicely with trying to perhaps resolve one of these outstanding issues in because um, all of a sudden you can actually see where these bees are going yes and 
And do they, I mean, it seems to me a bizarre concept to have a, an antenna kind of on the back of a bee. I mean, does that itself affect the behaviour of a bee and the way that it moves? And I mean, it would be, I think it would be not right if I say no. But the transponder is actually designed the, uh, in a way that it's actually very, very uh, lightweight. And bees are capable of carrying huge loads, I mean, in terms of nectar and pollen. I mean, up to 90% of their body weight they can carry around quite easily. And naturally they do it. So um, the, the weight of the transponder actually does most likely not affect the bee very much in, in the way it flies. It does, of course, sort of Im, uh, influence how bees, for example, can handle flowers and all the rest of it. But as we have a very controlled setting, I mean, we can account for this. The other thing is actually that we have, that we not only track, of course, diseased bees, we also uh, track bees that are in completely healthy conditions, which actually face the very same... Um, conditions. So they also will have the transponder. So we, we actually compare um, two different groups on the same baseline. So they always have sort of the same challenge to fly about in the, in the landscape. How have you evolved a, a system by which you can effectively catch a bee, stick an antenna on its back and let it, and let it go? Well, t- typically it's not, not so hard, I think, because we just station ourselves ne- next to the hive itself and we can be pretty sure that all of the bees we might be interested in are going to come in and out of that entrance, so we can very specifically know where we're going to catch the bees, I guess. And then I assume you, you then radio someone with the, with the radar and, and they, they, they pick it up and they, you're able to then beginning to track their movements. Well, the, yeah, well, the, the radar is basically sort of you know, on standby all the time. So as soon as we have a bee, I mean, we have this kind of prospects tunnel in front of the entrance uh, which allows us to sort of regulate the bee um, movement the bee traffic a bit more so we can have more time to actually spot single bees and just grab the bees with a with a forceps or with a little cage but then the radar is always sort of on standby so as soon as we have a bee that we're interested to track and we have equip this piece with a transponder we just radio someone and say okay let's just switch the machine on and off we go and typically this works quite nicely as we're driving along this whole area basically we can conceive as our uh, like our experimental arena and we can see our experimental hive to our left as we drive along um, and that's where we're driving to at the moment but our radar will be positioned about how many meters away would you say Stefan? How far away would the radar about to be? About to be on a 50 meters I guess yeah, over here to our right. Uh, that's where I'm driving. So the actual asset of this of this place is um, it belongs one of course to Roth Hempstead, which makes it easy to assess the fields, um, especially with the with the f- being on good terms with the farm people. The other thing is that it's very flat, so we have this kind of requirement for the radar to be not obscured by uh, vegetation of course but also not by sort of ditches in the landscape where the bee could just hide and we would not get any signals and we could therefore not see it on the screen so we have sort of kind of a mirror flat landscape here which is really absolutely perfect for what we uh, like to do so we therefore put the hive over there as you can see it's right ahead now and, and the radar behind us which kind of it's slightly elevated so it can look down upon the arena i suppose much more, collect the data much more effectively Okay, should we have a look? Yeah, sure.
calling something you said to me earlier when trying to introduce new bees into mm-hmm. a into a hive, you you encountered a problem that you hadn't anticipated. Just uh, repeat that for us. Yeah, uh, sure. It was a really interesting example. Well, it is a very interesting example indeed because, um, you know, I was actually following sort of a certain sort of advices I got from people that work with honeybees for quite a long time. And we marked a lot of bees and just introduced it to sprayed it with sucrose solution, for example, with a very sort of like a normal sprayer. Is there a danger then if you introduce a bee that it would just be booted out again? Yes, exactly. So, so typically bees do not like that. I mean, even if typically the acceptance rate is really, really high or way higher, say, if the bees are very young. And if you spray them additionally with sucrose solution, I mean, they, they typically uh, tend to be quite attractive to the bees, even though this is sort of foreign bees and they would chuck it out. What I actually, I just followed all these rules. So the bees were just very, very young and all individually marked, really nice, and I spread them and put them in the colony. And all of a sudden, I've just seen at the entrance a lot of workers actually dragging my bees out and dropping into the grass. So, which were basically hundreds of bees, marked bees, sort of hours and hours of labor, hours of work, just lost in the in the grass. And I, of course, there was no way to re, you know resample these bees. So we had actually to think of new ways of introducing this bees, sort of giving the bees, the introduced bees, a bit more time to uh, accumulate the smell of the hive for sort of the kind of fingerprint. And, uh, well, we find ways around that, and it's uh, actually working really nicely and it turned out to be one of the most uh, important tools that we actually developed quite early because we, you know, through, throughout the entire year, we continuously introduced bees to hives and even way older bees, which was sort of... For some other experiments, it was important to have the bees in a certain age. I think another example is when we uh, we had our our marked bees in a, a brood frame within. So you have a brood box, and with that you have a brood frame. And on that we had our, our experimental bees that had been nicely marked with you know, individual tags, and we were really happy that we'd done this. But we hadn't fed them with the inoculum that we were using in our experiments yet. So we had to kind of get around this what apparently seemed to be a really obvious and trivial problem but when it actually came to getting bees out of a brood box that were all marked and mixed up in individual colors we couldn't work out how to get them out and kind of put them into separate tubes to, in order to feed them properly and so we ended up you know scratching our heads for a you know a number of hours trying to work out how actually we were going to get the bees out in a, in a way that would work and uh, what was the solution well uh, jason actually the engineer came up with an idea to just modify one of the plastic ent- exits on that fit onto the hives. Because what tends to happen is that some of the bees are really active and really energetic, and those we got out really quite simply because they just crawled out the hole, and we, we used this kind of mo- modified tunnel to kind of use, to take these the bees from. But then as mo- more of these bees emerged and we managed to divide them out, we were left still in the, in the brood frame, got a number of bees that, that we couldn't get, get to. Um, but by that stage, the energetic bees had left, so we could easily kind of pick them out by hand. What about subsequently? We actually changed the entire approach yeah. to the thing, but just basically, also one of these kind of nice little things that you just discover um, that we really changed the entire approach of marking and inoculating bees to a completely new in a completely new schedule, which allowed us not not only to ha- overcome the problem with getting marked bees selectively out of a brood frame, where hundreds of hundreds. Uh, of bees are actually crawling about and you just cannot simply open the thing to 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 grab a bee but it actually turned out to be also a very sort of time-wise way more efficient way of doing things and uh yeah there's also it's a very nice example as as well there's this kind of little things that you tend to not 
think of because it's just like these kind of trivial things that you you know you always think about this kind of complex problems that you overcome but but never about these kind of little practical things and this is well yeah it's a good example to to this kind of fine-tuning of methods which sometimes can actually take quite a while you have this wonderful existence sort of partly indoors partly in the lab partly working <laughs> with the bees and, and also working the bees outside too and that balance of of um, human power always seems to be in that exactly that kind of precarious yeah pattern and different institutions i mean i'm we're all working with institutions from across europe and kind of engage in very very different types of research so part of the time i'm here doing the radar work and sometimes i'm in queen's belfast where i'm looking at other aspects of, of honeybee research so it's very exciting. It is it's sort of very good because it's this kind of project, um, especially with this kind of balance between practical and, and really theoretical issues and these huge collaboration networks that you that you operate in, um, allows a lot of uh, cross-fertilisation, if you may call it like that. Work of the kind that you're doing is has to be collaborative in yeah. this way, doesn't Absolutely. it? I mean, it couldn't exist otherwise. It couldn't work. Well, it would be possible, but I mean, the quality of the outcome would be way less because you simply, you know, you cannot be sort of like the the best guy in each and everything. It's simply not possible. There's an old Latin phrase that seems to capture the anthropomorphic attraction of the bee and anticipates the necessarily collaborative character of scientific research into the diseases that now threaten this communal behaviour. The phrase is this, una apis, nulla apis, which means literally one bee is no bee. Bees can't get on without each other. Their colonies collapse. Their efficiency as pollinators and as producers of honey go into decline unless they work together. And what I found so striking about the way in which Dino and Stefan spoke about their bee research is their need for experimental collaboration to investigate an international problem. Their research is ongoing. They continue to gather their data in the hope that they might isolate the many variables that affect bee behaviour. So, please return to this page and follow the links provided to keep up with their progress. For now, thank you for listening to this Pod Academy podcast. Please take a look at the other shows available in our Science and Environment Faculty.